Hey there, and welcome to the first episode of Flourishing in Color. My name is Crystal Blue Janga. I am a half Mexican, half Chinese woman with a million side hustles. I was born, raised, and currently live in the border town of El Paso, Texas. I am passionate about justice, knowledge, and grace, and I believe that diversity makes us stronger. Diversity in our social circles, diversity in our communities, and diversity in the voices we listen to. That is why I wanted to create this space, to have honest conversations with my sisters of color with the hope that our perspectives allow you to gather meaningful insights that expand your worldview. Some of our experiences may be the same, others may be different, but when we listen, lean in, and learn, we will create a flourishing world in color. This episode, we'll be discussing the discrimination and hate crimes currently being experienced by the Asian American community. I thought it was important to start off with a couple of terms and facts for those who may not know. AAPI stands for Asian American and Pacific Islander. The term AAPI is used to acknowledge that Pacific Islanders have a separate set of struggles than Asian Americans, in the same way that we use the term BIPOC for Black, Indigenous, and people of color to acknowledge the separate struggles of Black and Indigenous people. It's also worth knowing that the organization Stop AAPI Hate has received reports of 3,795 hate incidents from March 2020 till February 2021. It's important to remember that many Asian people will self-silence or not report to the actual numbers higher. From harmful rhetoric and jokes about Kung Flu or China virus to attacks on Asian elders in Oakland, hate and hate crimes against Asian Americans have been on an alarming upward trajectory. The latest and largest incident of the past year happened last Tuesday in Atlanta. On March 16th, a gunman shot and killed eight people, injuring one in a series of attacks in three separate spas. The victims' names were Soon Park, Hyun Jung Grant, Soon Cha Kim, Yong A. Yue, Xiao Ji Tan, Dao Yu Feng, Delena Ashley Yuan, and Paul Andre Michaels. The one survivor, Elcias Hernandez Ortiz, remains in critical condition. The gunman claims that the attacks were not racially motivated, but because of his sex addiction. However, all three establishments were Asian businesses, and six of the eight victims were Asian women. This is why there has been an outcry from the Asian American community, and why many have come out to take a stand against Asian hate. The hashtags Stop AAPI Hate and Stop Asian Hate have been trending, and this incident has been a spark lighting the conversation around Asian American discrimination, a conversation that has been happening in AAPI communities for a while while going unnoticed by others until now. This is why I wanted to bring in two fellow Asian Americans to discuss our feelings, what has contributed to these problems, and how people can be allies to the AAPI community. I am so excited to have Elisa Hayden and Wallace Quaintance here with me. Um, as we start, I just want to ask you guys a little bit about yourselves. So um, could you guys tell me a little bit about your ethnic roots and your background? Wallace, you can start. Okay, great. Um, yeah, uh, I am... I, I joke a lot that I'm the child of colonialism, um, but uh, my family is Dutch Indonesian on my father's side and German on my mother's side. Um, my great-grandfathers were basically colonists. Um, my great-grandmothers on my dad's side were uh, 
mostly Indonesian women. They might have been mixed at that point, but um, there was so much, you know, trade and travel and colonialism that it's all mixed up. Um, but primarily it's that. Um, so, you know, I've spent my whole life being the ambiguous other. So that, that's my... Yeah, I totally yeah. get that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm half Mexican okay. and half Chinese yep. myself. So I've always been that exotic, what are you? Mm-hmm. What are you? <laughs> so the most common that. question <laughs> I've ever been asked in my life. Yes. Yeah. Um, Elisa, can you tell me a little bit about your background and your roots? Yes. And I relate to that statement heavily. I always had a hard time checking the boxes when we were asked to define our ethnicity. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. <laughs> Which one oh do gosh. I check? Um, but I am half Filipino, half white. Uh, my father is a first-generation American. He came over from the Philippines um, to the States when he enlisted in the Navy. So he's my Filipino root. And then my mom was actually adopted. So we're not quite sure of her roots, but we're thinking Irish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, and it's, I'm excited to approach this conversation with you guys, especially because I think we all will have a slightly different perspective being mixed, Mm -hmm. Um, just because I think it in some ways dampens and in some ways amplifies our um, experiences with discrimination. And um, it'll just be nice with other people who have been that constant other, both in like society and also like in both sides of our families, right? So um, the first question I wanted to ask you guys was, how are you feeling with everything since Tuesday and Atlanta and just like overall with the past year? I have felt extremely on edge, um, especially since the shooting in Atlanta. I just it was the first time that I've really felt uneasy about everything. And my husband and I actually, my husband is white. We actually had a conversation about how I have to watch where I step right now um, and just be careful of my surroundings, which is uh, a newer feeling to me. Um, I've always known that I look different and I'm a minority usually in my friend groups. Uh, But this is the first time that I've really had to worry about um, the color of my skin and the features and what others might perceive of me if they have those extreme thoughts. Yeah. Um, It's interesting because, you know, what I've talked about recently with people is that I am simultaneously threatened and protected by the exact same thing. Um, because I look so ambiguous, um, it sort of protects me because people aren't sure. Um, but at the same time, it also, I also feel the, the edge and, um, threatened because I could fit in so many different groups. So anytime there's a group that's targeted or threatened, I feel on edge because I know that I've been asked, are you this? Are you that for every single one of those groups? Um, But at the same time, there's always a little bit of doubt uh, on people that, oh, she might be, but she might not. Um, So that's been a really interesting thing. And, you know, what I've really grappled with, with the Atlanta thing, um, which hasn't really been talked about is that these were, these were Asian women working 
in salons and spas with someone who has professed to have a sex addiction and is targeting these women for that, which brings up the whole thing about uh, the exotic other, um, the sort of uh, fetishization of Asian women. And that's been the bigger thing for me in the last few days. Oh, I, I totally get that. I think that has been definitely boggling in my mind because I've been seeing like maps um, for like where he traveled and how far the distance was between the three places and how there were like strip clubs right across the street. And mm-hmm. it's, so it's like, okay, if you really are upset about um, whatever purity culture or your sex addiction, but you were traveling to Asian spas <laughs> instead mm-hmm. of like strip clubs not that I'm wishing death on anyone but it just it doesn't track for me and I think it's hard because I'm sure we've all been fetishized in our own way throughout our lives I mean I can remember as young as I think 13 or 14 when I first got my oh did you know I have yellow fever comment and um like you know it it's crazy and even getting those comments from people like in youth group at church (laughs) thinking Mm -hmm. that it was totally okay and that it was a compliment um, what, how have you guys experienced kind of that exotization or that fetish fetishization um, over your lives? So I am an actor by trade and I went through a, um, a, a BFA program. I have a degree in theater. Um, I've done a lot of performance. And so I think part of why I've grappled with this so much more than say, other people in my family and other people in my family don't look like me. Um, you know, genetics are weird. Uh, I've had to confront it on a much more immediate level because I'm in an industry that is so much about what you look like. And, um, I, I, throughout my getting my degree in theater, constantly dealing with the comments of, you know, I'm in a Shakespeare class. And the professor is saying, I'd make a great Liat in South Pacific. And um, which is a character that is entirely about uh, the, the male gaze on the Asian woman. And she doesn't really talk much. Um, and so it's and that kind of it, that fetishization has been very real for me in that field, because you're going to play the 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 exotic other character the like the you know temptation that's the foil for the the white male lead um that's sort of always where I've been sort of pushed uh and not to you know the girl next door or the um you know traditionally white roles so that's been a very real thing for me um to deal with in that part of my life yeah, I actually grew up <clears throat> in a Navy town, and um, it was very transient, but very diverse. So uh, the Filipino population took up a good chunk of the culture there. Um, so I don't remember actually dealing with things like this growing up, and I don't know if it's because I was sort of protected by the fact that I had a lot of the Filipino culture around me. So um, people were more familiar and respectful of it than say somewhere where 
you know, Filipinos or Asian Americans might be a super minority in the population. Um, I do remember in college it coming up more um, people calling me exotic. Um, I was telling Crystal earlier that people have always had a hard time with my name. And that's something that has bothered me <laughs> because that's, mm-hmm. that's a part of who I am. That's, you know, and, um, but yeah, so it's, it's interesting that you say, you know, you grew up in a, I actually live in a Navy town right now, um, but I grew up in Los Angeles. So I would say when I was a kid, it wasn't as big a deal because, you know, LA is so diverse and there's so many different cultures all coming together um, and it's sort of not unusual. And like I was saying, it really started becoming a thing when I went to college, which is weird because I was in New York, but I was also in a field, again, that was so much about what you look like. Um, And then, you know, cut to uh, about 10 years ago about we, my family moved to uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina, where um, my husband was taking over a theater. Uh, He runs um, a a theater here in town. But before, before where we are now, he, we moved to Fayetteville and I was so different from anybody. Um, And they really didn't know where to put me. So I, I would get comments I would say something about with my group of friends, how I felt like, wow, I'm like the darkest person in the room. And, and they would say, oh, you, you count as white. You're okay. In a way where I was like, there are so many layers to what you just said that need to be unpacked that I can't, <laughs> I can't even deal with it right now. So that was, that was kind of a, a shock. So it's really, this has really been something I've grappled, I've only really been grappling with since I would say I was, you know, a a college student. Uh, My childhood, it wasn't as big a deal for me. Yeah, I, you know, I was actually talking to my therapist the other day because, like I said, I grew up in a Navy town. Yeah. But now I live in Richmond, Virginia. And oh my goodness. We're very close. Yeah. Yeah. We're very <laughs> close. <laughs> but I, you know, I was talking to her and I said, I am a minority here. Yeah. I am very much a minority here. And this is, we've been living here for six years. And this is the first time that it's really hit me that just like you said, Wallace, yeah. a lot of my friend groups are all white. Mm-hmm. We uh, know a couple of Filipino families around our age who are actually from the same area that we are. But um, yeah, it's it's quite different when you get struck with that feeling that you are very different from those around you. And yeah, even in your friend group. Mm-hmm. And just the amount of understanding that they have, too, is different. Yeah. Yeah. I I think that is so interesting because I think one of the things I wanted to kind of talk about is um, like a little bit of the model minority myth, a little bit of the fetishization um, and just how there are so many seemingly harmless actions that I think people do or take that they don't realize are microaggressions or not even micro sometimes they're just aggressions right and um how I think a lot of times Asians have been grouped in with white people by white people themselves or by other people of color 
when we're talking about discrimination and the entire BIPOC community, it's hard because as Asians, like we don't know where we fit um, because like yellow is a color too, but also with this kind of keep your head down and keep trucking that the Asian community has, like they're not as active in terms of um, calling out racist actions, which I think is why this entire um just uproar of stop AAPI hate and stop Asian hate has been so interesting because it's coming from a culture that almost like never speaks up. So what what are your feelings on the model minority myth? I guess we'll just unpack a little bit at a time. Ooh, that's a biggie. You know, I was listening to something the other day and one of the I think it was like on NPR or something and one of the commentators talked about it in a way that really struck me. Um, was that the model minority myth has created this sort of double victimization for the Asian population because it's on one hand, if you don't live up to that myth, there's that whole set of, uh, you know, you failed. Also, it's, it's the, it completely ignores the Asian minorities who aren't the doctors and the math, you know, the people who are working in blue collar jobs or, you know, are struggling um, economically and sort of the poor Asian community gets completely ignored in that thing. And then also you create a resentment from, um, say, the African-American or Black American population. There's a resentment that's been constructed from this model minority myth that there's the privilege of that that then creates animosity. So you're getting sort of the uh, victimization seems like not a great word, but it's the only thing that's coming to mind right now from multiple ends, right? Part of me too is thinking just about the cultural norms. So growing up Filipino, my dad is a very quiet, hard worker. And I can say that for most of my Filipino family. So I think another part is just, I think there is definitely a myth, but I also think it's cultural too, just to kind of put your head down, work hard, don't say anything. Um, But I'm so encouraged by more Asians standing up (laughs) right now. I know that it's hard for us um, because of all of this myth and everything but um i think it's necessary right right now well it's you know the whole put your head down you know my my grandfather my father's dad was he looks it's funny because i my filipino friends are like he looks so filipino (laughs) um and there is like i had my dna done it's like there's every i mean southeast asia it's just like all mixed up um but uh he never identified as an asian man he was a Dutchman. Hmm. Um, he was from Holland. Like his family was from Holland. And that has to go, goes back to that, you know, colonialist part um, where he was, they were always Dutch citizens, but because the Dutch had not brought women over when they started, you know, the, the colony and the, they brought Dutchmen over, but they didn't bring women. So the Dutchmen just all intermarried so that by the time it got down to my grandfather, there was actually genetically very little Dutch left, but that's how he politically identified. So he would never have been like, I'm an Asian man. I mean, he, the man like 
was all about John Wayne, you know, fixed his cars and was all like trying to be as American as he could possibly be. And so, you know, even within my family today, when I bring these things up, there's there's tension. They're like, why are you talking about this? Like, we just do our thing and we don't complain and we just like work as hard as we can. And, you know, we're, we, we have not been, they won't admit. So it's a really interesting tension there in terms of that model minority thing, um, acknowledging the privilege of it, but also the oppression of it is a, is a balance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, it's interesting because I think there is this idea that, um, like Asians always succeed and they do really well in school. And like, I remember in high school, I I would do better than a lot of my like fellow students, but that was because like when I got home, I had a tiger mom, like (laughs) there was no anything except for school. Like I had to give up musical theater. I had to give up choir. I had to give up soccer. Like I had to give up every single one of my extracurriculars except what would look good on a college application there's this other cultural part Mm -hmm. of the model minority myth that people think like, Oh, it's just easier for Asians. And it's like, no, Asians don't generally. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And we don't generally talk about like our home lives outside of it because there's this like, don't bring dishonor on your family type of mentality. And so it was really interesting for me because I grew up in a culturally Hispanic town. Um, we, I live right now like 10 minutes from the border of Mexico. And I think like probably over 80% of my city is um, Latina mm-hmm. and or Latino. And I lived in a very, very Asian household with my mom. Like shoes went off at the door. My daily chores included making rice, you know. <laughs> And so getting that model minority myth, it was interesting because like on all the forms, my mom would always tell me to put Mexican and not Asian because she was really scared about um, affirmative action Mm. and Mm. that I would be discounted or not given the chance at things because like the Asian little percentage spot would already be taken up. And so like all the hardworking Asians would take up those spots. And so I had a better chance if I identified as Mexican, which is like, Wow. So sad, I think. Like, there was a very clear path and there was a very clear, like, guide of what I was supposed to identify with when. And I think that also was hard because I would always, like, all of my accomplishments in high school or even in school were discounted because it was like, oh, but it doesn't really count because she's Asian. You know, like, oh, I did really well in calculus, but it doesn't count because you're Asian. Of course, you did well in calculus. It's like, no, I did well because I studied my butt off. <laughs> because yeah. I had to. Well, you guys were yes. Yes. Yeah. 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 And it's it's interesting that you say that, Crystal Blue, because I grew up in a different kind of household. You know, my mom is white and my dad was in the military, so he was deployed six to eight months out of the year. So our household didn't feel very Asian, but I grew up around a lot of Filipinos and a lot of Asian Americans and just... hearing and seeing I mean it's so so similar to what you're talking about just so much pressure pressure to be a doctor pressure to be a nurse that Mm -hmm. those are the top two jobs that Mm -hmm. (laughs) Filipino parents (laughs) want you to have are to be a doctor or a nurse (laughs) so Mm -hmm. you're going to study so hard to make that happen so there's yeah I that I can definitely say that I'm familiar with that 
it's funny. I mean, I didn't, I guess my, my parents weren't that hard on me for school. Um, I was allowed to sort of, they were, they, I had to do well. I mean, and they put me in private schools because they wanted me to get the best education I could. Um, and they, they pushed me to do well in my classes, but there wasn't the, like, I was allowed to get C's, you know, I wasn't being punished for getting a C. Um, but my grandparents, as much as they wanted to be Dutch, <laughs> there was this intrinsic, like, are you doing what, like always, are you doing well in school? Are you working hard? And if you're doing the other things, are you excelling at them? You know, it's like, you don't, if I'm going to do theater or I'm going to do music as long, I can do it as long as I am still excelling in school and then you're doing it and excelling. It's not, you're not doing it just to have fun, right? You have to do it and be really good at it. Um, and I didn't have the sort of conscious awareness when I was a kid to look at my grandfather and go like, that's a really Asian thing, dude. <laughs> <laughs> like, um, but it's something in reflecting on that for sure was definitely a pressure that I felt from him. Yeah, I think one thing, you know, we, we touched on both like the exoticization of Asian women and this model minority myth. But I think what's important to bring up um, for people listening is that a lot of these comments are like this victimization is unconscious by outside people. I think there's this idea um, within the Asian community and outside the Asian community that when these discriminations happen, well, they're positive. Like, wouldn't you want to be seen as extra sexy? Like, wouldn't you want to be seen as extra smart? Um, Why are you upset about these things? Right. And I think that's one of the hard things is that people who consider themselves allies may be unconsciously doing these things as well mm-hmm. um, and may just be um, perpetuating both of these myths and microaggressions. And I think it's important to call them out and to say, hey, I know these look like positive things to you guys, but they're definitely not. Um, for instance, with respects to Atlanta, um, I am a huge like anti-trafficking advocate. So I acknowledge that a lot of times um, massage parlors or spas, all those things can be fronts for brothels or trafficking, right? Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of the trafficking organizations like in Atlanta immediately jumped to that conclusion and were immediately advocating. And I think that is also in and of itself harmful. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, if mm-hmm. they are trafficking, like maybe – But also, like, how harmful is it that how many guys are going into these spas just assuming, oh, Asian, giving massages, I must get a happy ending, like, I must have the options to also get sex, just because of these, like, this misinformation that's being perpetuated. And again, those are all great, great intentions with trying to stop trafficking, but pinpointing it on Asian women um, in these professions is extremely harmful from both the John side and also like the advocate side. Absolutely. And it's, it's the, it go, this goes back to the, the very beginnings, the earliest instances of, you know, quote unquote Orientalism and um, the early colonial expeditions that this is a system that has turned Asian women into objects of desire for and temptation they're foils for 
white male travelers in untamed places, right? And it goes back to, it's the, it's the colonialism. It's, it was magnified with Vietnam and with Korea um, when you had all these soldiers in these countries and you create, there was this image created um, that this, this female Asian body is there for the temptation, for the desire. And we've have, we have Madame Butterfly, we have Miss Saigon, um, all these romanticizations of that that have created this, this bigger, you know, obviously like every myth starts with some kernel of, of reality, but it's this large myth of what the Asian female body is there for. Um, and what's so harmful about it is that it discounts everything else. You're not taken seriously. You're not seen as um, capable of this job um, because you are you are almost infantilized in a lot of yeah. ways. And just objectifying know? a person yeah, instead objectified. of yeah. actually seeing the person as yeah. human. So, you yeah. know, you get particularly, particularly from white women who even white, you know, who are allies that will make comments about, Oh, like, I wish I had, you know, your skin or your eyes or your hair. It's so, you must so lucky to like look the way you do. And they mean it from a place of, isn't this a wonderful thing? And all you're feeling is like, but that's not all I am. Mm -hmm. I think it's also interesting because um, you, you talk about Orientalism. So um, for anybody listening, PSA, <laughs> do not call Asian people Orientalists. Yes. Okay? That's We're why I said, please. Yeah. Which, is, which is, I very specifically said, quote, unquote, Orientalism as a, as a thing that happened, not as a, what you would call a person. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, I think that's the interesting thing, right? Is that Oriental is like still a common used term for inanimate objects like yes. an oriental rug oriental market right um but you do not call people orientals right so when people are still calling asian women orientals i think uh. it goes back to that object objectification objectification <laughs> of seeing them as things instead of people i mean i've been called like china doll china girl right mm -hmm. and it's like do you really just see me as this inanimate object <laughs> like yeah. you know and it's like oh yeah it might be like in ter a term of endearment to call someone a china girl or a china doll but it is it's not especially because most people are not actually chinese like i am but most people that you yeah. are calling a china doll are probably not even ethnically Chinese or even yeah. ethnically like East Asian there might be Southeast Asian yeah. or you know mm -hmm. a mix of that I just I feel like there's so much to be said about again like those compliments or seeming compliments that are actually really harmful and it's especially difficult because there's a lot of Asian people who it takes them a while to realize that they're harmful like maybe right, right. now with all the rhetoric yeah, going mm -hmm. on, they're barely realizing like, oh, all of these instances that I felt uncomfortable, <laughs> it wasn't my fault. Like we're made to feel, I think sometimes that it's my fault. I was overly sensitive mm -hmm. or I'm overreacting, but it wasn't. And I think that is one thing that I think allies can be really, really mindful of is, yeah. you know, racism in your life doesn't just look like um, 
I don't know, sizing up the black person in the subway car next to you, or, you know, assuming that a Hispanic person is an illegal immigrant, or, you know, these negative connotations, it is also telling your friend that their success is just because they're Asian as part of the minority myth, um, or telling someone that they are just lucky because they look so exotic, right? These things that are construed as positive are also racist. There's, yeah, and, and it's, it's hard because I don't want people to feel like they can't ever compliment someone, you know? It's like you don't want to say, like, you can never say, like, oh, your hair looks fabulous or, you know, I love the way you did your makeup. Um, but there has to be the understanding that there is, it's, there is context that you have to be careful about when you're saying it. Not, like, realize that there is more there that you might trigger. It's things like, and I'm very sensitive to it. So like, you know, in the, I don't know if you guys were on the, um, on the shine conference um, and everyone was commenting on Karen's voice. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And it is, it's a beautiful voice, but I realized that I was also being triggered by so many people just commenting on, it is a fine line to go, okay, is this something I need to be pushing back or is this just completely innocent and okay sometimes I don't even yeah and I think there is just with everything that's happened in our country in the past year as far as the Black Lives Matter movement as far as the uprise of anti-Asian hate there's this hyper awareness going on right now um, where it feels like we're extra sensitive to every everything everyone says at least I know that I feel like that personally. And I think it's yeah, for sure. it's okay to be there right now because that means that we are becoming aware of things that may have happened to us that might have been microaggressions that we didn't see at the time, but we'll see if they happen in the future. And it's an opportunity for our allies to learn more of how they can stand beside us and walk with us during this. Um, but it definitely feels like there's some crazy hyper awareness that I think is making people a little bit uncomfortable, but to me personally, it feels necessary. It's the, the pendulum has to swing. Right. And then uh, at some point we'll find balance again, but it does have to swing to the other end. Yeah. I think also, um, one thing that I've been thinking about is how we approach everything that happened last Tuesday, yeah. right? How many people um, either were out of the loop or didn't care or were so quick to say, oh, this wasn't uh, like, this wasn't a hate crime. This wasn't racially motivated. Didn't you hear the gunman said himself mm-hmm. that it wasn't like racially motivated, which also in what world are we taking the like word of a psychotic <laughs> gunman who is terrorizing people and like killed eight people. people right? Yeah. Like at what? Yeah. Eight people. Yeah. At, in what world do we take his opinion over the actual people who were there? who are saying, no, this was a hate crime, right? And I think that has, like, shaken up so many of us because we see ourselves in them. Um, There's – I think it's been so hard to go from just hearing jokes about, like, the Kung Flu or – hearing that like Chinese restaurants are being boycotted because people think that they're going to get coronavirus or that one two-year-old who got like um, I think like slashed Mm. in the face with a knife because she looked Asian Mm -hmm. right it's this slowly escalating thing that we kind of compartmentalize that oh well 
it's not that bad or it's in another city. But when it comes to just a person having a bad day or whatever they said, um, going and opening fire on people just because they were Asian women, it makes you realize like, oh man, that could be me next or that could be my mom next. I mean, my mom owns her own salon. I have so many of my family who do live in Asian centers who go grocery shopping. And I'm like, is it safe for them to go grocery shopping? Is it safe for my grandma to go to her Chinese church or will that be next? Mm -hmm. Right. I think I just kind of want to focus a little bit on that as we kind of come to a close, like how we're feeling or how we feel like Tuesday has really changed the narrative around this. Well, I have to say I was thinking about this conversation last night and thinking about how I'm feeling in my body even and just, you know, there's a, there's almost a sensation that comes with it, this nervous energy. Um, And it's very similar to what I felt when the George Floyd incident happened. It, it feels so similar in my body because it seemed like that incident is the straw that broke the camel's back. And that's when we really started to cry out and say, Hey, we need to make significant systemic change in this country. And, and when the shooting happened in Atlanta, I immediately felt the same way in a more intense way because I am Asian American and this, this affects me personally and um, it so deeply. And, you know, yeah, now I'm worrying about my dad going out, even though he lives in a very densely populated Asian American city. Um, But also could that city be a target? So same, same thinking as Crystal Blue said, just kind of going through this really dangerous um, scenario in my head. And and there's just so much fear right now for Asian Americans. I know a lot of us are just kind of sitting with it and trying to figure out what to do next to go forward, because I, I don't know what to think when they said that that guy was just having a bad day. He murdered eight people. Most were six were Asian American, I believe. And one was 33 years old. She was a year older than I was. Mm -hmm. And she was out on a date night and I had, I think, two kids. And so it's just (laughs) sitting with that. I'm I'm starting to get a little worked up Mm -hmm. over here. (laughs) I need to breathe a little bit. But yeah, um, sitting with that is very hard. So it's like, how do we take action? How do we go forward? Um, How do we raise our voices to make deep change in our country for people of all color, not just Asian, but people of color in general. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy how it, things I was thinking about after it were like, how I do my makeup changes. I mean, (laughs) honestly, like, well, I'm I'm not going to put on my eyeliner today because I look more Asian when I put on my eyeliner. Like that, when I had that thought, I was like, did I really just think that? Like, I really thought that, um, you know, trying to, to hide those features of myself when I'm going out because I don't want to be targeted. Like that, that thing, like, do I, and, and thinking about that was something that really shocked me. And then the other thing that's so, that I felt so frustrated by with that, you know, hearing that, oh, he was having a bad day and, he was angry, um, you know, about his sex addiction. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't, I have bad days. I don't go out and kill eight people. Um, and this idea that that 
separates it from the issue of race is what has really yes. been bothering me. Um, because it can be that he wasn't specifically thinking about COVID related or he wasn't, he, he wasn't anti-Asian hate because of coronavirus, but there was anti-Asian sentiment if it was about his sex addiction. And it's still right. a matter of race because what he, what he has done is saying, I, it's not my fault. It's the, uh, it's the femme fatale, dangerous Asian woman that's created yeah. this in me. Um, and it's still a matter of race, no matter what the motive, whether it was, you know, coronavirus or something else, you can't separate the racial issue from the rest of it. You just can't. I agree. I think um, one comment that I heard that really struck with me is like, how many dang massa- massage envies are there around Atlanta that he could have yeah. if it was about massages or about yeah. spas? How yeah. many, you know, and like I said about the strip clubs, like there's so many other things that I think if you hear about this and your immediate, like your immediate instinct is to brush it off as, oh, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't a hate crime or I'm sure it wasn't racially motivated. Um, I think that is an opportunity for you to check your privilege um, and you check your privilege to be able to be um, separated from this and to not, you know, have your heart broken by it, but also check your privilege that it's easy for you to separate race and sexualization mm-hmm. or race and hate crimes and to be able to say, oh, I side with the words of the gunman and not with the words of the victims, right? Um, I wanted to ask one more question as we're wrapping this up. How do you guys think that somebody can be an ally to the AAPI community right now? Yeah, (laughs) all of that. Um, And all of that. I also think a big thing is um, Mm -hmm. calling it out when you see it. Uh, For so long, um, jokey representations of Asian people and um, have just sort of, they've been acceptable. No one's calling it out. You know, a kid is pulling yeah. his eyes to make them squinty mm-hmm. at school and it's, everyone's like, ha ha ha. Or doing, you know, gibberish Chinese, you know, with, you know, quotes mm-hmm. like, um, doing silly Kung Fu moves, you know, what they, you know, kids on the playground and, and talking to kids about how that's not okay. Um, because most of the time they're just, it, no mm-hmm. one says anything about it. Um, it's sort of, I've, for a long time, I've, I've talked about and felt how the one cultural group that is still, it's still acceptable to make fun of mm-hmm. is Asian people um, with, with talking in a bad quote unquote Asian accent, stuff like that. And I think not allowing that to, to happen, talking to your kids about why that's inappropriate goes a long way towards humanizing people of Asian descent. And then Again, on with with the kids, you know, there's a lot of literature uh, stories of Asian people getting it in their hands early is really important. There's a great uh, organization called Learning for Justice, which comes out of the Southern Poverty Law Center. There's a lot of resources there. So if you're unsure, that's a great place to find ways to talk about it and and how to call it out when you see it. But definitely speaking up when you see it. Yeah, and I think you're right, Wallace. It it starts in our own family units and just educating our children about, you know, what what's acceptable and what might be seen as super offensive. And yeah, just educating them on different cultures and the beauty of it and how how 
it needs to be respected. I think one thing that I have been thinking about for allies, both white allies and BIPOC allies, is just noticing what um, voices or like influencers you're listening to on social media, right? I think so many people mm-hmm. have, when they're talking about diversity in their circles or diversity in the voices they're listening to, they can list like how many black people they're listening to, or maybe sometimes Latino people they're listening to. But um, how many people have actual like Asian voices that you are you are going to or seeking their perspective on things um, so that when things like this happen, you're already in the loop. It doesn't take hearing it from somebody else who heard it from somebody else to be in the loop, but you're kind of hearing from people in that community. So even things like changing your social media feed to include more voices of color and more Asian and Pacific Islander voices, I think is huge. So on a lighter note, I wanted to end this just asking you guys, what song is your current jam? <laughs> um, this one is actually, it's a Christian band, but uh, I've been playing them on repeat for like the entire year. <laughs> um, it's Maverick City Music. I'm not sure if you've heard of them, but they're actually, I think they are based in Atlanta and uh, they have been putting out music almost every month this year. And it just is, it, it feels like it's written to the time. So it's really speaking to my soul. Um, so there's this one song ruins that uh, is my, it's my favorite song right now. Wow. It's so hard because I mostly listen to whatever. My <laughs> yeah. I was going to say blues clues at first. Uh. But I had to <laughs> Baby shark. Like, Baby I can't shark. say My Little Pony. My Little Pony is not cool. Um, but uh, I don't know. I've gone back. I know it's like super over popular, but I've gone back to um, I've been listening to the Hamilton mixtape a lot, um, yes. which is, you know, there's obviously the cast recording, but the um, the the immigrants song on the mixtape um, what is it called? I can't. I think it's just immigrants get the job done. I think um, so, too. I think it's that one. That's been like something I've been playing a lot. Um, my my nine year old has been listening to a lot of Hamilton because of her social studies teacher, which is funny. So you know that's that's <laughs> been a big thing in our life right now. Okay. Well, I want to so. thank you guys so much for taking time out of your busy mom schedules to uh, come on this podcast for being my very first guest. Thank you. Yeah, for having this conversation with thank me. Thank you. Thank you again to Elisa and Wallace for joining me. It was so cathartic for me to know that I wasn't alone in my feelings of otherness, and I'm sure that it was therapeutic for them as well. One recurring theme that you may see on this podcast is stories of people who feel a sense of otherness, like they're in the margins in some way. As BIPOC people, there are many ways that we live on the margins of the cultural norms, and in others, we live in the center. That is why intersectionality is so important to me here. With intersectionality, we examine how the different facets of our identity combine to give us unique perspectives and levels of privilege, and how to practice a holistic form of inclusion. That being said, I want to let y'all know that while this episode focused on AAPI communities and advocacy, I in no way want to detract or lessen the struggles of advocacy for any other people groups. I am in fact so excited that this conversation was just the tip of the iceberg of conversations we'll have here in the future with so many different sisters of color. I mean, I just love this quote from Terrence Lester. 
Growing in diversity and inclusion means that you learn to listen to what people have to say that are different from you with the filter they are speaking from an experience and perspective that is not my own. So as you listen to this podcast, some episodes may resonate with you, others may ruffle your feathers. My hope is that no matter your reaction, you continue to listen to these diverse opinions, lean into uncomfortable truths, and learn valuable insight that inform your perspective. Okay, now let me tell y'all how excited I am for next week's guest, my dear, dear friend, my hermana, Amy Wilkerson. Amy and I will be doing a three-part series on adoption that I'm sure everyone will be interested to hear. Part one will be about how we talk about adoption and adoptees. Part two will be about how we approach adopting. And part three will be a Q&A where she'll be answering questions submitted by you. So if you haven't, make sure to go follow the podcast Instagram at Flourishing in Color. That way you won't miss out on new episodes, new guest announcements, guest IG takeovers, and ways to submit questions. I want to end this episode with a poem by Tasha June titled, Yellow is a Protest. My daughter has a yellow puffer coat, a bright bundle of color skipping on sidewalks, a protest against the monotony of overcast sky, a wake-up to wonder color, joy reaching far and wide. What would my world be without her yellow? She is the zest and zing of lemons worth the weight of gold crowns, scent of fresh pineapples and papaya, and the hope of daffodils rising. A goldfinch colors the sky with yellow song, reminding me that God made yellow things too. Mustards and marigolds, cornfields, kungnamul, canaries, and the sun, oh the sun, colored with burning bush fire and the wild scribble of kids' crayons. What would we be without your heat, wax, and bird song? I am yellow, shades of skin and starlight, moonshine in the dark, reflecting the light of all lights. Bright, beautiful, beloved yellow, a protest against virus lies, superiority, and silenced lives.